Welcome back to our podcast, Mum, Will the Planet Die Before I Do? We really hope you're enjoying this podcast and you can find more about why we wanted to make it in the introduction to this series. Now, what are our rights if we're pushing against climate change but are getting nowhere or feel that governments and leaders aren't doing enough? That's where our next guest comes in, Tessa Khan. Tessa is a human rights lawyer and co-founder of the Climate Litigation Network. It all sounds very heavy, but in this episode, we asked Tessa about our individual responsibilities as parents fighting the climate crisis. And Tessa reminds us of the rights parents have in a democratic society. How would you describe what you do, Tessa, firstly? Um, I would describe it as trying to hold the groups that are responsible for the climate crisis accountable for it and I would describe those groups as being national governments who have known about the problem promised to do something about it you know for 26 years uh, or more Um, they're one of those actors and the other one is the fossil fuel industry which has known about it for 50 years covered up the science deliberately misled the public spent billions lobbying governments to slow down action on climate change and so I'm working to hold those actors accountable because I think they are the ones, not you, not me, not we, as in us little guys. It's those powerful actors who have responsibility and who could fix this. And if we apply enough pressure to them, in fact, that's the only way that we're going to win this. So how are you doing that? Let's talk about the legal because I know you talk about like pursuing a legal journey with this I mean that just blows my mind I'm just trying to get my mind around what I can do as an individual to help but hang on I I've heard that mentioned by a couple of people and it kind of blew my mind because I think we're so quick to try and take individual responsibility and I have to say I get completely crippled by it on behalf of I need to change the world I need to help my kids I need to help the global kind of world but I find that really fascinating what you're saying is no, it's less about what we're doing as individuals and it's more about making the actual polluters calling them out for their behaviours, which I find really kind of mind-blowing after a really long time of like, you know, self-flagellation of like, we need to recycle more, we need to turn off our lights and stuff. Yeah, well, it was the fossil fuel industry that created the concept of the personal carbon footprint. They want you to feel like it's your problem, you know, (laughs) which is very convenient for them um, but and, and don't get me wrong I think especially that those of us globally who are in the kind of richest 10% are we do have disproportionately large personal carbon footprints compared to the rest of the world and we as people in the middle class in the rich world should definitely be taking the steps that are available to us to to live more responsibly that that can also be empowering and feel really good and you know we should all I think at this stage especially given where we are do everything we can but ultimately the blame and the responsibility should be squarely put at the door of those who have also the real power to engage in the kind of transformation that we now need in 2021 Um, and I think it can be hugely disempowering actually if you just put all of the responsibility on yourself as an individual and don't have that kind of broader analysis of who actually is responsible and who can who can change things. I mean, there's two things I want to ask you that, you know, who are we pointing the finger at, but why? And where is that going to lead us? Because we don't want to go down that, well, I don't want to go down that blame game because 
you know, experience just doing that with anything in life doesn't get you anywhere unless there is going to be some constructive outcome to that. Um, and the other thing I want to ask you is just legally, mm. what on earth are we talking about here? Where do we stand? What are our rights? So let's talk about that. I understand your, you know, aversion to sounding um, aggressive or, you know, like it's just finger pointing. But I think, again, you know, we have to look at the way that social change has actually happened, you know, with the civil rights movement or the end of apartheid. It does require you to call out the people who are acting in a way that jeopardizes the public good. And there's just no way of getting around that. And change doesn't happen unless people are made to feel uncomfortable, the people who are in power. Yeah, but and, how do you know, I sat here in my place of home, in my little cozy environment, do something to hold those big players to account? Maybe this brings us back to the question of who those big players are. Um, so the first group, as I said, are are our national governments who have literally, they signed the first international treaty on climate change where they committed to stop dangerous interference with our climate in 1992, right, which is now almost 30 years ago. Um, and since then, every year they've been convening at these COPs um, to reaffirm those promises, to increase the level of ambition, to recognise that 1.5 degrees is the threshold for a livable climate. They've all accepted that they need to do something and then they don't do anything. So that is outrageous. And that is why people are now litigating against governments in national courts, because they are breaking promises and commitments that they've made year on year, um, you know, for three decades. And they have the power, as I said, you know, with the global financial crisis, with COVID, they can pull it out of the bag and change the way that our economies and societies look, you know, almost overnight. Who do I speak to? Do I just call up my solicitor and be, or my lawyer and be like, if I have a lawyer and say, I want to bring some kind of what, individual action against? I mean, how do we pursue that legal recourse with this as an individual? Yeah, I mean, and legal recourse is, I think, only one of the ways that's available to you to hold your government to account, you know, in a democracy. So I totally get that litigation sounds really inaccessible and... Um, you know, it it is, it's something that you can only do if you have the resources and the time and energy to, to be a claimant in one of these kinds of cases. But these cases are happening in every country in the world. Who, who is it that, that kind of drives this? I, it's pe just pe normal people, isn't it? Who, um, and I find that a really kind of visionary thing to do. Who, who is it? Who, who are you representing? So I uh, worked on cases. I was working sort of internationally as a human rights lawyer and campaigner and about six or seven years ago started to realise that actually climate change is the biggest threat to our enjoyment of human rights and equality and, and development, you know, globally. Um, so I really needed to be focusing on climate change. And I heard about this case in the Netherlands that um, a group of Dutch lawyers on behalf of an NGO, a Dutch NGO, as well as about 900 ordinary Dutch people had brought against their government, basically saying that what their government was doing in terms of its increasing emissions or failure to sort of reduce emissions sufficiently was a threat to their human rights, which are legally protected in the Netherlands. Um, and I was like, wow, that's fascinating. and unprecedented and I'm sure I'll never hear from you again and 
you know, two months later, uh, they won their case and it was sort of front page news in the BBC and New York Times, just a huge, huge moment, watershed moment globally. Um, and I was like, okay, well, this is one way of actually getting governments to finally deliver on those promises that they've made for so long that they will protect us from this crisis. Um, and so I quit my job to join them and we sort of set up an organisation called the Climate Litigation Network where we work and continue my, I mean, I've left, but my colleagues continue to do this, but work with lawyers and activists and campaigners around the world who want to basically replicate what was done in the Netherlands in their own country. Um, and since then, you know, there have been, it did create a global movement and, you know, we supported a successful case in Ireland. There have been successful cases this year against the German and French and Belgian governments, against the government of Pakistan and Colombia. Like it's, it's, it's a global strategy that people are now using um, because, as you say, they feel like the other tactics that are available to them just aren't producing the action that they want. Um, so it's usually... NGOs that tend to drive, you know, campaign groups that tend to drive this stuff. They already have lawyers that they're in touch with and and then often there's an option for people to support, whether that's to join as a claimant in those cases or to donate or to show up in court or, you know, whatever it is. I came into this conversation thinking, oh, that kind of legal, you know, avenue feels like such a, you know, why, why should we... It should be a last resort. Mm -hmm. But now what I'm understanding is actually that's so that's exciting and really empowering. It is. But I also think it's quite sad that we're having to do that, that people are having to do that. And the fact that you wheeled off their Tessa a number of countries where the cases have happened, you almost want to celebrate the fact that they've won. But also to me, it feels quite sad, the fact that they're having to even do that, which then makes me wonder how much goodwill momentum there is among these leaders heads of state national governments around the world to actually take this seriously if these cases are still being heard and going through the legal system for me it feels like a bit of a bittersweet almost that you know that that is the option for us it's good to know that it's there but gosh have we not moved on from having to do we not need to get past that now and all understand that something needs to be done here and and work together? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And ultimately, the courts are an important lever, you know, in that they are an institution where that where governments are held accountable for their legal obligations. And so I think it's strategic to use courts in this to help solve this problem because they've been used. Courts have played a really important role in all sorts of social movements, you know, and they've never been the thing on their own that changed things. But they apply a new kind of pressure to governments and they set a new kind of constraint on what governments can get away with. But I completely agree with you that ultimately this is a political problem that needs a political solution. It needs governments to fully take responsibility and one court judgment, you know, might help push that along. But it needs a much broader scale of change than a court decision on its own can deliver. So, you know, that's I always sort of say, like, we definitely should be using courts, but courts on their own aren't going to solve this issue as they've never solved, you know, a big big problem in the past I've I've been really struck by kids trying to teach their parents about climate change I've mm. been really struck by 
kids really getting the science and kids really um, understanding the gravity. Also just amazed a couple of young people I've spoken to recently kind of saying, yeah, we're having to show our parents the way. Feels like this weird reverse mentoring thing. So almost that legal um, route kind of hinges on the fact that people understand what's going on. But like, isn't that weird that we're in this on the brink of catastrophe and people don't really, people like me don't really understand like what, what, what needs to happen in terms of educating? Because I guess the people you're working with, the people who know. Yeah, I mean, I think most people understand or certainly, you know, the sort of younger activists that we work with, um, the teenagers that we work with, they all, I mean, they have an incredible, you're right, a lot of them have a very sophisticated analysis of the problem and who's responsible and how we got here and what needs to change. But I think more broadly, people in their guts understand that something is deeply wrong, that we are not doing enough. They hear the headlines about, you know, how mass extinction or, you know, of, of various species or they hear about the unprecedented lethal flooding in Germany or they see the pictures of the fires in Greece and Turkey and they're like, this is not right. You know, something's deeply wrong and mm. we get that there is more that could be being done than is being done um, and we're kind of just looking for a way to to channel that despair or anger or frustration um, and I think you know you don't have to fully have a granular analysis of the problem to still I think be incredibly useful and important in pushing governments it's not your job to come up with the solutions it's not your job to write the industrial policy that will address the climate crisis it's their job it's government's job it's the fossil fuel industry's job to stop covering up the science to stop profiting from the product that they sell, to stop opening up new oil and gas fields when the scientists are crystal clear that we can't do that anymore if we're going to stay within a livable climate. Those are the people who need to change and we just need to push them to change. But feeling that you're just describing, oh, I mean, it's a punch in the gut, isn't it? It's like a kick. But I think that for some people that causes them to shut down and look away because it's just too huge to to deal with it's just too huge so you know I've got mates who are like oh yeah climate change but uh anyway let's talk about something else or have a gin and tonic um so I think it's probably very a very human reaction isn't it like oh big thing oh let's close our eyes and you know not stare at it in the face so what what can we do to to overcome that especially as as parents like how can we kind of wake up, not be scared of it, um, and kind of get on board with what needs to be done. I think the most important thing is to recognise that we all have agency, you know, that we all have a role to play here. And actually as middle-class people in a democracy, in a country that actually is in many ways taking leadership on climate, has done in the past, you know, this is a government that is actually sensitive to people's concerns about climate change. Um, we have the resources. It's a rich country to, to move away from fossil fuels to make sure that there is, you know, a just transition. We can do that, actually. Here in the UK, it's all opportunity. You know, there's, there's a huge opportunity. We have the most offshore wind capacity of any European country. Like we could be at the forefront of great stuff on the other side of this crisis. 
So I would embrace that, actually. For us to talk about opportunity in the UK, to me, feels a bit like, oh, okay, well, that's quite shiny. But shit, what are we supposed to do about the people that have gone through it, suffering from it, grieving from it, probably going to go through it again before we even understand their reality? Well, honestly, and I've thought about this a lot as someone, you know, I mean, and I was living in in Asia before I started working as a climate change lawyer, um, really kind of, you know, with the communities that were at the forefront of those impacts. I mean, my family is in Bangladesh. My colleagues, um, I was living in Northern Thailand at the time, but, you know, they were from the Philippines and had just, their families have all just lived through Typhoon Haiyan, which was the strongest typhoon to have made landfall at the time. This was back in 2013, like, and I can tell you that the most ethical thing that someone in a rich country like the UK can do for those people in solidarity with those people is to push our governments to be more ambitious on climate change. That is, you know, if you want to help them, we have to reduce our emissions. That's kind of the bottom line. We also, of course, you know, our governments also have a responsibility and have promised to deliver finance, you know, funding and aid to those countries, which they have failed to do. And we absolutely need to increase those commitments and actually deliver on them. But in terms of stopping the damage that my family and communities in Bangladesh are experiencing, the most responsible thing that I can do is take responsibility for the disproportionate emissions that the UK is currently producing And as a country, you know, historically, we are the eighth biggest emitter in the world because of, you know, the fact that we started the Industrial Revolution. Um, And so we have to move first. And in the UK, that's a conversation about the opportunities that moving first provides. But ultimately, that's driven by a moral imperative, which is we've got to be the country that takes responsibility and takes the lead in reducing emissions. You know, that sense of... I, I sense it as deep shame of thinking, you know, that I'm fat and rich in this country and as a direct result of the pollution that we've spewed out here, other people are living through the first climate-induced um, famine in Kenya. Like, I Is it almost... that simple, though? Is it that... Is it that distinct a correlation? Yeah, I mean, from a scientific perspective, like the physics of climate change are that, you know, we, that greenhouse gas emissions stay in the atmosphere for hundreds of years. And so if you want to really talk about who is responsible for the current impacts, the famine in Madagascar, the, you know, flooding, the heat waves in India and so on, then you have to look at which countries have emitted the most. And on that scale the UK is number eight, you know, and you can point to India and China as people like to do. But, you know, the India, the average Indian's carbon footprint is a fraction of the average person in the UK. And we've benefited from a, from being able to just keep polluting the atmosphere and, and off, you know, basically offshoring the impacts to other countries where they're experiencing them despite having contributed so little. What do we do with that responsibility? What do we do with that guilt and shame? Yeah. What do we do with that apology? Yeah, because it we... is guilt and shame. It's, it's, it's an awful, even though we've already discussed that we're not individually, you know, we can't make it because then, then you just sink into kind of a mm. black hole of ghastliness. But yeah, what do we do with that to, to kind of turn that around and make it positive for the most affected people? Yeah, and I think that's why I would really 
encourage people not to internalize that guilt and shame because also as individuals you're not responsible for the UK's industrial policy over the last 100 years you know and again this is why I think we have to be clear that the 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 people who are responsible are our governments and the fossil fuel industry if you keep bringing it back to them they're also the ones who can deliver on the aid that that we now owe those countries that are experiencing the impacts because of our past actions. That was a big part of the discussion at COP, Katie, I'm sure you're aware, was climate finance and the fact that we are not fulfilling promises. Those promises are too meagre to begin with. But that is a huge part of the responsibility that we owe to those countries. You know, that we're in- not yet as, as um, nations recognising or paying. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I, I, I guess at least it's being recognised. Yeah. Is that a cold comfort? Yeah, it's, again, this is one of the things that I sort of take heart because of from the COP is that we are talking now about the fact that, yeah, the reason that developing countries are so angry is because they are living with these impacts, you know, especially the smaller island states that were the most moving and indignant, you know, in the last few weeks at COP. And that's because their countries are literally disappearing because of the emissions that have overwhelmingly originated in rich countries. And what they're saying is help us adapt to those impacts, help us build seawalls, help us relocate people. You know, that's the least you could do. And you haven't done that. And actually the UK government is now cutting its aid budget Um, So that's something we can push our governments on. And then the other thing we should be pushing them on is to be more ambitious in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The UK government is considering opening up 30 new oil and gas fields in the next three years. You know, that's what I'm now campaigning on because that's what I think I can do, you know, if I really think about my responsibility to, to people around the world. When you think about your family and the communities and the people that you know in Bangladesh that are affected by this, we started off this conversation where you said, you know, I feel quite energised after COP. Um, do you feel that way when you think about them and what they're facing, what they've gone through? Mm. Um, I feel extremely motivated to fight, you know, which is, I guess, a source of energy. I, it is the, the most profound injustice you know that that's what so many people around the world are having to live with as a result of other people's actions you know and in Bangladesh um the impacts are so significant already I mean they are making people's livelihoods impossible because of the rise of sea levels because of the encroachment of salt water in their freshwater supplies and you know there was a study a couple of years ago that I remember reading when um, in Australia there were those terrible wildfires and it was the first time that a lot of my sort of friends in Australia were like okay and, and you know that was obviously really serious people died and so many people had to flee their homes um, and people were like this is what you know climate grief feels like um, and I remember thinking like in like I'd read a study years ago in Bangladesh about the fact that women were miscarrying because of the salt water that was in their drinking water and that's you know that's because of climate change and that's I, you know I mean it's so unfair and it's 
it is the most acute human suffering and so of course that can be and I and I allow myself to feel that sadness and that grief because it's important and but then I then I think about what my responsibility is and that's that's a huge motivation to fight. I know lots of parents that I've chatted to who've said I made a poster and I went on a campaign because I just wanted to show my kids that I was doing something which actually really you know has moved me of of you know loads of different parents saying I just want to show my kids that I'm on the right side of this um what what other things do you do you kind of recommend that as parents we kind of get involved with or do to show our kids that we're doing something that sounds really naff doesn't it but anyway yeah I mean I it sounds like your kids are giving you an excellent steer and I would do everything that they are telling you to do so uh, that's an amazing resource to have in your household. Um, but in all seriousness, I mean, yeah, as I said, there are, we live in a democracy, luckily. That means that governments respond to the pressure that we put on them. So I would do all of the things that not just your kids, but campaigners are telling you to do. Write to your MP, go to meet them, you know, at a constituency meeting. Make sure that they know that this matters to you because otherwise the pressure they're getting from the other side, from the fossil fuel industry, is extremely powerful and they, you know, it is the most well-resourced industry in the world. Um, so unless they are hearing that from, from the people that they are ultimately accountable to, they will continue to default to the status quo, which is, okay, let's just keep business as usual going even though business as usual is killing us. Um, so I would exercise every lever that you've got in relation to your to your MP, actually. I think that's super important. And then I would also, you know, I mean, it sounds like you also have an amazing group of very well-informed um, peers and parents that you're speaking with. But I would all just make sure that this is something that everybody's talking about and thinking about and doing what they can, whether it is printing a banner or, or joining a march. I mean, you know, I think all of the studies on... There was, you know, one particular study that you may know about um, that showed that for kind of big tipping points to happen, so politically, you need three and a half percent of the population to be actively involved in a cause. And actively involved doesn't mean suing your government. It can mean just taking some action, whether that is making a banner or marching or writing to your MP or talking about it, you know, in a public forum. That is actively participating in a particular cause or campaign. And that's, that's what it will take to create that sort of tipping point and, and domino effect. It's also re-energised me about democracy because to be quite honest, I think for a long time I've thought, this is just hopeless, leaders don't get it. I'm just gonna march in the streets. But it's really um, taught me again, what you've said, Tessa, is actually keep persisting with your MP. Honestly, it's so kind of horrendously boring to get the the emails back say you know with flim flam it's just like you want to kind of stick nails in your eyes but what you're saying is keep going with that because we're lucky to have that democracy and it does work and so I'm really grateful to you for that because I think I've I think I've lost sight of that yeah yeah and it's not that glamorous you know <laughs> writing to your MP or having those conversations um but it is that's what we have 
as tools, you know, as ordinary people. Um, we're not in power. And it's, it's also clear, I think, that the people in power know exactly what to do. And Katie, I'm sure you, that was your experience in Glasgow. It's like, we know what the solutions are. We know exactly what that future looks like. We just have to agree to do it and make some of the investments, which by the way, are a tiny fraction of the cost of the damage that climate change will co cause us, are a tiny fraction of what we've done in the last year to deal with a public health crisis. We just have to make those slightly difficult decisions now for an unimaginably better future that is available to us, that still exists, you know, on the other side. And that's, it's up to us to kind of push, make it impossible for governments, I think, to ignore that that is what people want and that we care. Are you optimistic about what lies ahead? I'm hopeful. I don't know about optimistic. I guess it's sort of semantic, isn't it? But I guess I... I really believe that a lot of people want to fight, you know, for our survival and our thriving. Um, and I work with those people every day and I meet more and more of them. And, you know, that's also probably, I guess that's what people say, you know, like you can't experience hope passively, you know, like action is what leads to hope. And I, and I try to take action every day and, um, and I think that we have, you know, small wins that will one day translate into the big win. Um, and I, you know, even these conversations, honestly, I feel energized by this conversation because it is, this that didn't happen two years ago. I didn't get asked to go on podcasts to talk about what everybody can do to help, you know, end the climate crisis. Like that's huge progress and there is progress. Um, and I, I guess, like, I also often think about, um, you know, and I think as a human rights campaigner and lawyer, you know, you often deal with people in really hopeless, what feel like hopeless situations. And that's the story of so much oppression that leads to revolution in terms of, you know, justice and like the civil rights movement. I mean, I can't imagine a more a situation that would induce more despair than segregation and what people experienced in the 1950s, you know, in the US. And they believed in the fight in the face of, of overwhelming odds, in the face of it never having been done before, of no example or precedent, you know, and, and they won. So I don't, I think you just have to believe in what you're fighting for, you know, and that's enough. Believing in a fight in the face of overwhelming odds, with no precedent, and winning. Incredibly powerful stuff from today's guest, human rights lawyer Tessa Khan. Next week, we're joined by David Shookman, a journalist who spent decades reporting from the front lines of climate change. See you then. Mum, will the planet die before I do? Is a Corner Shop media production presented and produced by Babita Sharma, Katie Glasborough, and edited by Nisha Patel.